the bill currently says that it needs two specialists mm. and, you know, the person needs to be fully sane. You know, there's scenarios that I've thought in my head of how this wouldn't work, you know. Mm. I'm neck minute, your heart stops, you are with all, all these things through your mouth and you can't really tell anyone mm. that you want to leave and you can't even tell anyone that you want to stay because mm. you're, like, in such intensive care. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, what are you going to do then? Welcome back to Subcut, the medical-ish podcast where we talk about things that would be relevant to high school students, medical students, uh, doctors, or anyone that's interested in medicine and the healthcare profession. We're talking about a super interesting topic today that is very topical here in New Zealand, which is the end-of-life medical assistance in dying, euthanasia, um, whatever you want to call it. I'm Justin Sung. I used to be a doctor, and we've got a special guest today who is... Kia ora, I am Adriana, I'm Daniel Christie, and I'm the candidate for the Epsom electorate with the Opportunities Party. Thank you for having me, Justin. My pleasure. So, um, you know, who, who better to talk to about a new up-and-coming policy for a controversial topic than um, a politician from an evidence-based party? Now, we're not going to talk about um, things from a super, you know, politically biased perspective or anything like that. What I want to talk um, about is the the not so much the you know necessarily just the concept of euthanasia but actually how's it being implemented what are the policies that are sort of from a p political point of view really relevant um why did it even come to be you know like now as such um and your own views obviously as well as just taking a step back to look at some of the health policies and what might be you know an alternative or what are the other areas of importance from a from a policy point of view because as I'm sure if you're a medical person, if you're a medical student watching this, you know, you probably don't know anything about politics. Okay, let's just be totally honest, right? You know, most medical people are not super versed in thinking outside of medicine. You know, the frame of thought is always, you know, from a medical reference point. And I want to try to break out of that a little bit. Okay, so, but before we get into that, um, can you give everyone a little bit more of a background just about you, um, your own experiences and your kind of, position and the opportunities party? Well, I'm not a health student, um, but a little bit about myself. I was born in South America, in Colombia. My mum's a Pakeha, she's a Kiwi, and my dad's Colombian. I came over when I was 17. I did high school in Kaitaia, then I came into Auckland because my family lives here. I have three aunts that live in Auckland, well, lived in Auckland. Um, the family that I lived with are surgeons oh. and my cousin's a medical student. So I had to, um, uh. so I learned a lot through watching them and reading their books and stuff, which was fun and great conversations. And we've actually talked about the end of life bill. Mm. And, um, you know, so I was really passionate about social entrepreneurship of being able to reimagine a new way of running business and looking at the economy. I do love business. Like I am, I would call myself a conscious capitalist. Um, but uh, just seeing all the waste and seeing all the issues that we have socially and environmentally, I thought that I needed to be a little bit more um, outspoken about the needs of the world. And then I stood for council in 2017. I made it in. I re-stood again last year, and I got the second highest amount of votes, and I am your local rep for this area, which is Waitemata. And then, um, you know, no one's been standing against, um, or no one, like, who's... Socially progressive has been standing against David Seymour for, and you know, there properly since like forever. And I live in Epsom, so I mm. just decided to be bold and kind of like, 
you know, due to me being uninspired and unimpressed with what's happening in Epsom, I decided to stand. So with top, and here we are fighting the good fight. Awesome. And um, just as a bit of a context for, um, you know, international listeners, because I know that we've got some of you guys. I don't know how you guys found us, but, you know, anyway, welcome. Um, the What's happening right now in New Zealand is that we are looking at the uh, euthanasia bill. So, f- so the idea behind euthanasia is that you have a doctor or a physician or in some cases a nurse practitioner who is authorized to help a patient in their own life almost invariably because they are terminally unwell and are in suffering that cannot be alleviated by best medical practices and they'd rather you know die with dignity and there are um, die with dignity acts um, in, in other countries like Canada and it's been uh, trialed in Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands has had it for a very long time now. And New Zealand is now jumping on board this concept and thinking, okay, do we want to, out of number one principle, support the idea that doctors can perform euthanasia in New Zealand? And then number two, how are we, how are we going to actually implement that into a policy so that it happens in you know, real life? So that if you are or, or a loved one is in suffering and you're in that situation, you legitimately will actually have that option. And so the question is out there to the public right now in a referendum, which is tied into the current uh, election going on here in New Zealand. So that's kind of the question here is that what is the euthanasia bill actually about? And is it something that is a high priority? And what is the viewpoint from a political point of view before we dive into all the medical points of view, um, you know, with other guests as well? So yeah, yeah. Well, what I guess a bit of context is that David Seymour's mother passed away, and he's the one that has put the bill forward to Parliament. And um, for him, it was a very personal experience, and he felt that his mother was, um, you know, had the right to be able to l- die with dignity. And you know, it was really hard for him to see his mother suffer a lot. So he went off and did a bunch of research with what was happening in Scandinavia and Canada and everything. And he's been working with practitioners and with psychologists and everything to propose this bill. Um, it's taken him six years to get it into um, you know, an eligible, understandable, comprehensive um, form. Um, in terms of a political perspective, it's um, interesting for me to watch it because, you know, he tends to attract a lot of conservative people mm. who are fully against suicide. And, um, you know, I, I, I've seen um, throughout the years how people have reacted negatively towards him, el- older generations, due to this bill. But, you know, there is a, a, a percentage of people that, are seniors who are, have a terminal illness and who are really supportive of this bill mm. because they feel that they can um, end their life in a decent way. Mm. Politically, I think um, ideologically it opposes a lot of things. Like I'm socially progressive. I have voted for the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that just having the option for you to opt out if you want to in a in a, in a a safe and healthy way then you know you do you boo if you Mm -hmm. want to then most definitely and i'll support it Mm. um obviously i've had to read the bill quite a lot because at first i was not supportive of it Mm, there were a lot of issues i was so not supportive of it because i just i personally have had two experiences my grandmother is currently in hospital and you know she had a heart block and you know if 
you know, if she, because she's articulated that, she, you know, she wants to die in an appropriate way or whatever, um, you know, I'm happy that the bill in South America doesn't exist because she's awake now after five days and she's conscious. She came out of her coma. So, you know, if that was the case, you know, what would have happened? But then again, this is where um, specialists get involved. Obviously, there's two medical professionals who come and assess the patient and mm-hmm. assess, you know, the, the family. You know, it, there's multiple cases of families here in New Zealand who have your aunt is extremely wealthy mm-hmm. and, you know, I know a case of one and, you know, your family aren't the best at taking care of you. So, you know, when is this a bullying scenario of wanting, you know, this person to pass away so that their yeah. inheritance comes by? So there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, alarming um, issues about it if you really want to delve into specific scenarios. Mm-hmm. But I feel that the bill has been able to um, interrupt those alarming issues with solutions such as, you know, having a practitioner, having a, 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 psych, a psychiatrist, mm. um, having a medical perspective, being terminally ill. Mm-hmm. Not You just don't go to a shop and kill yourself if yeah. you want to kind of thing. Well, let's, let's, let's say, lay some um, foundation then, you know, while we're at it. So currently what the current form of the bill states, right, is that you have to be, okay, at least 18 years old, okay? But having said that, evidence from other countries, um, I believe the most relevant was like Oregon, um, which is similar population size to New Zealand. um, And that's what's been used in a lot of the comparisons to see, you know, who would actually end up um, using this. Now, I don't know exactly how transferable it is because the demographic of New Zealand versus Oregon is just completely different. (laughs) Um, So I'm not sure exactly how transfer about that data is going to be but it says at the moment have to be 18 or older realistically you're not really going to be getting many people at all that are in that younger age you usually see that they are sort of in their 70s um, or so Uh, you have to have a terminal uh, terminally ill diagnosis where the prognosis is that you will probably die within the next six months and uh, you need to have suffering that is considered intolerable despite best attempts to um, manage it, which is subjective on a number of levels. So from the prognosis part of things, as a medical person, you know, I'm, I know that prognosis is really is just an educated guess and yeah. it's so hard to know. And it's it's almost just like part of it is data, but part of it is just this, this, this gut sort of intuition that you get from the patient from a combination of multiple different factors. So it's like your hypothesis. Yeah, it's just it's just a hypothesis, and it's not even like a very um, like it's not a hypothesis that you'd really bet too much on. You know, you can usually tell, okay, this person's gonna die within the next you know weeks or days, but then when once it starts stretching out in towards months, whether this person will die in six months or one year or two years versus, you know, that becomes a lot more gray. So if someone is really really ill and you know that they're gonna die very soon, you can usually say that with relative certainty. But once it starts stretching out to a point where it's like, this person will die soon-ish, that six months in a way I feel becomes very guessworky. So there's, you know, there's that aspect of it. I don't think the current bill has really addressed that, but I'm not even sure if it's something that's possible to address. Well, it's complicated. I, I have a real life um, scenario. My partner, his dad is terminally ill with mm. cancer and you know he had a tumor in his kidney, doctor, put the kidney on ice, ice melted, and then the tumor, the water went through the whole entire kidney. They put the kidney back in, and now he's got cancer all over his organs. Mm. 
And, you know, they gave him three months to live. Right. It's been a year and mm. he's still alive. And, um, you know, my partner has talked to his dad about the end of life bill, you know, because for him it's really important um, to make sure that he, one, um, understands his dad's needs and two, has as much as um, amicable time with his dad when he's um, conscious. His dad is not supportive of the bill. Mm. His dad says that there has been times during his journey that he wishes he could pull the plug straight away, mm. and then two days come by, and then he is so happy he is still alive because he can share time with his family. So he's on the fence about it. And, mm. um, you know, in terms of a prognosis side, you know, the doctor's hypothesis about his kidney being okay after surgery mm-hmm. was not the case, you mm-hmm. know. So we're we're that's that's so many variables and untruths about situations of like people get induced into coma and then maybe not come back or come back, recover and have a happy life five more years. Yeah. There's uncertainty on basically every every front. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's a I think that's a question mark that just continues to float in the air around around the bill. So, I mean, that's, I think that's just one thing to just park. Okay. Just keep in, keep in your mind when you're listening. Okay. Is that that's one area that's, you know, very gray. It's, it's sort of gray, even though it's written as six months. And then the next part is the idea that it has to be sort of intolerable suffering, which is in a way also very gray because not, not just because different people tolerate different things. I mean, that's fine. Whatever. I mean, if you are someone who whatever just can't tolerate as much. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're suffering any less. Um, so that almost doesn't matter. But I think the interesting part is in the medical intervention that can help to actually alleviate this person's suffering. So in New Zealand at the moment, palliative care, which is, you know, if you if you don't know what palliative care is, it's basically uh, symptom management usually, but not always, but usually in the cases where a patient has a terminal illness or um, in some other cases, they get involved when they have chronic conditions that have a lot of pain issues in them because they're effectively specialists at managing pain and improving quality of life. So it's when quality of life is more important than quantity of life. And we are shifting the, the focus from keeping this person alive to just making sure that this person is alive comfortably. And that's really what palliative or pal care is about. And in reality, pal care is actually highly effective the vast, vast majority of the time. And I think in um, Australian studies, only around 5% of cases, they're not able to manage palliative care effectively. In my personal experience, and I'm not a power care specialist and I haven't worked in power care, but I have you know, obviously interacted with lots of people that have worked in power care and have some experience with it. I've almost never really seen a patient that had didn't have their pain and symptoms managed um, poorly, you know, to a level that it was intolerable. But what I do also know is that power care is also always extremely underfunded and under-resourced. And so the question is, okay, so if we have this euthanasia bill coming through, then from a power care point of view, is that actually taking resources away from power care? Or even if not resources, is it taking attention away from power care? Is it undermining the trust and value that power care has? Because, Mm. you know, if um, your grandma was in a hospice, you know, and then the entire mentality is that, you know, the hospice is doing everything that they can to make sure that their quality of life is going to be maintained. But then in the back of your mind, you know that there is always an option that they could just euthanize. Yeah. From a psychological point of view, even purely. Yeah. That it plays with your mind, doesn't it? it? Yeah, there's a big yeah. there's a big trust yeah. component there as well. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'd like to invite all of us to start thinking that we can't compare apples and pears. 
you know, so there is a bucket of money that might go to Palkir and there will be a m- bucket of money allocated to euthanasia. I feel that sometimes we get confused about um, the importance that we're giving to scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like you just highlighted an important point that Palkir definitely needs more attention and um, maybe investment in things like CBD oil, which helps patients reduce their pain mm-hmm. when they're terminally ill, that would be fantastic. When it comes to a concept of, for example, Luke's dad, who was in hospice during COVID, you know, who was pretty feeling pretty ill, he quickly recovered again for the third time and is out again. If the idea of him being in hospice and not being able to see him again because he talked to his partner and then two specialists while he was in care and then we won't see him again is quite daunting. Mm. You know, I feel that I know it's the person's personal decision, but in my opinion, thinking it like you just said so scares me. Mm. You know, obviously, you know, I can't interrupt that person's wants. And, you know, the bill currently says that it needs two specialists Mm. and, you know, the person needs to be fully sane. You know, there's scenarios that I've thought in my head of how this wouldn't work, you know. Mm. I'm neck minute, your heart stops, you are with all all these things through your mouth and you can't really tell anyone Mm -hmm. that you want to leave and you can't even tell anyone that you want to stay because you're, like, in such intensive care. Yeah, Yeah. so it's like, what are you going to do then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, okay, just to clarify, so the, the idea of sort of two specialists is that at the moment there's no such thing as a euthanasia specialist because, you know, obviously it doesn't exist in New Zealand yet. So the, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe that currently what it says is that the doctor has to have su- sufficient experience and training in it uh, and at least five years um, of experience under their belt. Now, I'll just comment on the five years aspect of things. Five years of experience honestly, as a doctor, is actually probably enough to get a pretty good level of clinical acumen about things. It's definitely not what I would consider like a specialist level when you consider like cardiologists as specialists. You know, cardiologists, you know, they'll have, even your most junior cardiologists will have 10 years of experience, you know, under their belt. Whereas five years is enough to really, you know, find medicine as a do- from a doctor's point of view, not so daunting is basically where it, where it is. So you do have a lot of, acumen but um you know the even the idea of sort of a specialist is difficult to kind of quantify you know who that person is how much experience they have um and in a way how valid that person's assessment is in context to the wider huge topic because there isn't even training for this either so who would even have that level of training yeah I'm talking to my family you know they're surgeons and my cousins uh studying medicine For them, it's really hard to understand that the life, like they already know that they're saving people's lives on the daily. You know, vascular surgeon, breast cancer surgeon, you know, and my cousin who's really into neuroscience. Mm -hmm. But then being responsible to end someone's life for them is really daunting. Mm -hmm. And they don't like the idea of it. Mm. It's a pity that um, Top doesn't have a specific view about um, the end of life bill, Mm. you know. Um, for me, it's quite frustrating because I wish I could kind of like give a more parties perspective, but because yeah. it's so evidence-based. I think it's better to actually approach it. I mean, I think I've, I've always been of the 
opinion that if the conclusion doesn't have enough premise for it to be solidly formed, it's better to have a non-conclusion and just keep open rather than just anchoring into something that just feels intuitively right. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's happened in Scandinavian countries. The end-of-life bill is way stricter. There's Mm -hmm. higher guidelines Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, when this can happen. But it is loosening, I think, over time. It is loosening. So, um, like, in the Netherlands, I think the age requirement is, is, has gone down. Yeah, I mean, it's ages, even said yeah. that it's appropriate and sometimes for children as well, if they have severe um, suffering. So, and, and I think up to like three to three to 4% of all total deaths in the Netherlands is actually through their assisted dying or assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia. Yeah. Netherlands is uh, the most progressive mm. um, in terms of all the countries. Canada is uh, slightly stricter. In terms of the Netherlands, what I found really interesting is that they're, very liberal with their views and they don't really like to impose things on people so they tend to be very open in terms of like i said before you do you and i think that's a cultural thing Mm. i feel that here in aotearoa we're not at that stage yet to be that loose we tend to have the likes of the jamie lee rosses in the world to come and impose things on us right (laughs) so yeah Mm. So you think you think that a big part of this is actually just a sort of um, cultural psychological norm, yeah. That New Zealand currently has. Yeah. Well, if you talk to, because I've had the chance to talk to different ethnicities when it comes to this bill, mm-hmm. and just due to like in passing and conversation, you know, there is a lot of um, Hindu Buddhist um, people mm-hmm. who disagree mm-hmm. with it. Um, you know, especially Hindu people, you know, there was actually quite a few Hindu people that went to um, complain to David Seymour about it because they felt that they were never consulted. Mm. And for them, it's quite disrespectful in terms of their religion. Um, Then there is the conservative Christian people who obviously are fundamentally against it because, you know, God is the one that should take your life away from you. So um, in terms of, so that culturally also creates a lot of shifts. Maori people on the other side, they see the benefits of this bill, mm. you know, so, so there's, we're so diverse mm. that, you know, I feel that putting this referendum out to the public is a fantastic thing mm. because yes, um, medically you might have your concerns, you know, but politics doesn't work with common sense sometimes, you know, politics really works with people's wants and, and things. Mm. So things I mean, like I want this and I don't want that, you know, so yeah. hopefully the referendum can reflect what the greater public of Aotearoa are mm. saying about the subject. Mm. I, I want to dive into that a little bit more. But before that, I actually want to come back to something that you were talking about before, which is the resource allocation aspect of it. So just explain a little bit more how the resource allocation would work. Because in medicine, we're often uh, we're often thinking about the resource cost of certain things and the opportunity cost that it has. Like, for example, there's you know one of the four fundamental medical ethical principles is that of justice, which actually says that your treatment has to be fair, not only for the individual, but for all of your patients across the entire system. So if you're giving a liver transplant to someone because they're your mate, you know, that's not just, um, even though in other moral ways it could be justifiable because obviously that's not going to create equity and fairness. So we're used to thinking about things taking, a, you know, one thing taking away from another thing, but you're sort of saying that that's actually not how it would the resource allocation would work. In terms of governance, um, you get given a bucket of money if you're leading a portfolio, and then you have a work program of all the items that you're wanting to allocate that funding to. 
So what tends to happen is with that work program, let's say, for example, you get a new item, let's say the bill that gets allocated into it. Now, in terms of finding the resources, we're, one, very tricky because we're currently in a lot of debt and we're getting into huge debt. So what tends to happen in a local government perspective is that you either get more money. So this is interesting. So you get the money that's allocated to your bucket, but then you get a bucket of money, another bucket of money, which is money that you can just allocate to things that need um, more investment in. And in council, it's called a locally derived initiative. And this is this happens in all governance perspectives, in private or public. And what you do is that with that money, you allocate it to a specific budget to enhance the portfolio. So let's say, for example, there's already one work line item that has an X amount of money. Mm-hmm. You know, what you can do is that you plug in more money to that because it needs, um, you know, further investment. But then that is not determinant of the next end of life bill I item on the work program because you can just allocate it into there so what tends to happen is that it's trickier with health because we're talking about one specific portfolio Mm -hmm. but when it happens with multiple portfolios say for example you know we're helping this is a hypothetical case we're we're helping people with solar panels Mm -hmm. Uh, oh how can you be helping people with solar panels when we need clean water no there is money already allocated to keep on working on clean water it isn't one or the other Mm -hmm. so it isn't that ruthless prioritization Mm -hmm. as um, we tend to think because we're there's always buckets of money that you can always plug in things Mm -hmm. you get what i mean so if there is money that is needed in the pal care side of things then that should be raised and you know we should do a lot of advocacy on it mm. um i don't think it's a, a determinant of if the bill goes by or not because the money is um you you can just flow it through you can just allocate it from different places right so you could prioritize one of, over the other one but it's quite complicated when you do that because that means that you must be facing a severe budget cut right which at the moment is i mean how Realistic is that perspective currently? I feel that I mean, um, given as, wait, sorry, just given especially the f- current year that's been and how much of a budget stretch things are. Yeah, I think currently uh, the government is doing quantitative easing, which is not that much. Essentially, it's not printing money, but it's essentially throwing more digits in places. You know, that's a slight risk. And yes, debt is bad, but the Reserve Bank could easily pay the treasury or vice versa that debt they've got enough money in their bank accounts at the moment to be able to cover each other's debt debt is a good thing because it helps regulate inflation and deflation right so the biggest risk that the country is currently running is deflation right because once you start printing more money and like trying to pay over your debt and stuff you know inflation will come at risk Incomes come at risk, um, property costs come at risk, taxes come at risk. Yeah, so debt at the moment with what the Labour Party is doing and with COVID and all of that is still manageable. Mm. You know, it's about being proactive and finding ways. So, you know, with what the ACT Party National Party are offering in terms of abolishing all these, like, for example, research and development for tax. Mm-hmm. You know, if you t- X that out, it's going to take you at least 10 years to replug that in to a work program. Right. 
You know, if you're, if you're going to ask, um, you know, Callahan Innovation, mm-hmm. you know, who wants to get rid of Callahan Innovation? <laughs> well, they do. Right. But what happens then is that it's going to take forever to find an institution that can incubate startups that are world-leading in different ideas. Right. You get what I mean? Yeah. So, so that actually brings me to another point, which I think is really interesting, is that um, one perspective of this is that even if you don't agree with how the bill is being executed now, if you agree with the concept of euthanasia, you should vote for the bill because... Correct. Otherwise, it may just never come back Correct. in. Whereas the medical perspective from that is like, if the bill comes into force, then there are actual straightaway consequences of that and there will be harm that is done. And so there's a, there's a very difficult balance. It's like, okay, I could support it out of principle, but then at the same time, does it mean I have to accept that there has to be a certain amount of harm that is done? To do yeah. that, and in, from a from an ethical point of view, that doesn't seem justifiable. Actually, yeah. you know what's very interesting, Justin, that there is a lot of suicides that currently occur from people who are terminally ill, mm. who don't want to live, and we just can't quantify it. There is, you hear it, you've heard of it. Someone took too much tremidol, you know, stuff like that. Right. But you, it isn't p- out there in the public. And so we don't have data on yeah, that sort exactly. of thing. Yeah, exactly. So right. you can okay. you can say it's harmful, but mm-hmm. I think it already is quite harmful. Right. So it's kind of like the marijuana look. Exactly, uh, just the same way. Yeah, it's it's that it's not that it's not already a problem is that we don't even know about it because it's not yeah. being looked at. Yeah, right. and the thing is, stoners will keep on smoking weed all they want. Right. It's people who have mental health issues, who haven't mm. been educated enough about the levels of THC that come into your body, yep. and then you face paranoia and schizophrenia and um, PTSD and all that. Mm. Okay, well, I mean, I think that's quite interesting, right? So that that really says that, okay, so you know, having the bill come into play, it doesn't make it so that it's, uh, it doesn't make it so that the harm, you know, there's more harm being done, it's just about the harm that is already occurring kind of being more regulated and, and manageable and manageable. Mm-hmm. Now, how difficult would it be for this to come in, for the bill to come into play? And then we'd realize that there were certain issues. Let's say we ran it for, you know, two years later, we realized, okay, there are certain things that we're seeing in the data that's not um, good. You could definitely amend the bill. And how difficult is the amendment of a bill? Um, sorry, relative to um, actually having a bill come into play in the very first, like actually being put into force? Well, what happens is that you won't, if there is issues with the amendment of the bill, you won't have to go out to the general public mm-hmm. of the whole entire country to hear their views. There will be specialised people who have case studies and evidence to show that certain aspects of the bill need to be amended, and then you just present that to Parliament. You know, So usually you get a backing, well, I haven't been in Parliament yet, but you know, I've been well write about how things work in terms of process, but what happens is that you need a backing of quite a few number of parties to be pushing through the amendment of that bill. Right, okay. Mm. So it's way easier in terms of process because it's already a line item in your work program. Right, okay. So it means that there's something that can be more worked on. Mm. That's interesting. Um, You mentioned actually something before as well just about the education side of things. You know that if you are... if you're well educated about, you know, you were talking about the cannabis idea behind it and the people that are not as well educated about it getting access to it. And that's where a lot of the harm is being done and not being seen. Okay, let's take that back to euthanasia. So there's a, you know, there's a definite correlation between health education, health literacy, 
and socioeconomic position. And obviously, as everyone knows, the unfortunate situation is that also low socioeconomic position tends to fall with Maori and Pacific um, ethnic groups in New Zealand currently mm. as it is. Mm. And so uh, people that are of lower socioeconomic position in general are going to be less able to afford, and I think this was one of the arguments that was made based on the um, like Canadian studies that were looked at, is that currently most euthanasia is being accessed by uh, more well-off people. And so are we really just providing a service that's really benefiting the people that could already get good power care and not actually serving the people mm. who might actually need it the most? Or the flip side mm. is that would we actually get a situation where the people that are the you know worse off socioeconomically feel more pressure to not be a burden on the people around them. And therefore that actually, even without external co coercion, makes them want to prematurely potentially end their life, which becomes even more gray when we think about the idea of prognosis being pretty much guesswork. Mm. I mean, mm. that's really almost a concept, concept sort of principle argument. Yeah. But is there like a political way of sort of looking at that that makes that seem a little bit easier to kind of well, look at? You know, the Opportunities Party is all about prevention, you know, mm -hmm. health is wealth. And that's why, um, you know, just, you know, people who tend to come from low socioeconomic backgrounds tend to have, you know, um, predisposed non-communicable diseases such as diabetes. And it's because for you, it's cheaper to buy a $2 white bread loaf that is, has all the preservatives in the world than to go to the corner bakery to get a multi-grain loaf. Mm -hmm. So given that their health is not at the best optimum position, mm -hmm. I feel that we can just turn it into a flip side because once we start generating a, a form of education so that people eat better, exercise better, have a better quality of life due to the UBI or whatever politically, then um, you won't have people who feel that they're burdening to society. Mm. So it, but that, but it's that a also fundamental thing. Yeah. And, but it, it is a fundamental thing, and I agree with that. And But it is also, that is a, a, that's a very long game, right? Educa you know, education is one of the longest games there is. We don't do it, though. Oh, yeah, we don't do it. <laughs> but even, you know, even the process of doing it, I mean, it's slow to change, it's slow to move, new things. I mean, what, NCA had the biggest reform in, like, history or whatever recently, and it was, like, comparatively minor compared to what could be done. So there are a lot of you know, things that need to happen. And I do think that changing those things fundamentally will change the game completely. Yeah. But when we're talking about an isolation, like right now, we're talking about a bill coming into play potentially very soon. I mean, if the bill comes into play, committees being formed, the training and all of that sort of stuff. Let's just say that there's like roughly one or two years for that to actually really start being, you know, easily accessible. At that point, we're not going to have had that educational kind of, change right yeah so is there is there a like i mean w what's the mitigation what's the what's the counter argument to that being still justifiable in yeah. terms of maybe worsening disparity yeah you know it's just that to be able to have this hypothetical case of mm. someone who comes from who is maori and pacifica who tends to be quite religious um you know starting from the fact that if they're you know someone or whatever they're they're religious they believe in god so that kind of like limits their wants to want to terminate their life mm -hmm. in an ideological perspective. Mm -hmm. But let's say, for example, if there's an atheist mm -hmm. who um, has 
had enough, who is terminally ill, um, who might want to proceed with term, uh, ending their life, they do need to talk to two practitioners. Mm. You know, fine. It is, you know, you can just be a very mean practitioner and go, you know, you're not worth it, goodbye. That could be a case. Mm. And that is alarming. Mm. But we have to definitely tear it apart because we're talking about, what, with all of these outliers, we're just um, shortening the amount of people that fall into that demographic that would do that. Do you get what I mean? Uh, that last bit, can you explain the last bit again? So you're saying, you know, someone in a so socio, low, low socioeconomic, um, termini terminally ill, Māori or Pacifica, who feels that they're a burden, who won't want to terminate their life, um, you know, so that you're talking about a very small, 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 small amount of people because one of them is lots of um, Samoan Pacific Islanders are religious, so mm -hmm. they don't agree with the bill, for starters. Mm -hmm. um, two, uh, the practitioners may not allow that to happen. And three, they have to have a terminal illness. So mm -hmm. the percentage that we're talking about is quite low. Yes, mm -hmm. it is possible. I'm not saying it isn't. Mm. There is this hypothetical case that that could be an issue mm. um, in terms of the greater circumstances of the bill. You know, there will be people that are terminally ill that might not be well off, might be just middle income, middle income kind of people mm. that will proceed with being able to do that. Mm. Do you get what I mean? We're I talking do, about do, such I, a small amount of. I do people. get what you mean, but uh, so from from the way that I see it, there's a there's quite a difficult balance that's being made with a number of things. So on one hand, is the idea that it probably is a small amount, but we actually don't know the actual impact that the, you know, all those things like the religion and all of that, especially the religion aspect in terms of who in that religious aspect still given all their circumstances agrees or doesn't agree and how that's going to impact. And I think it's, there's even no point even thinking about that part hypothetically, like we need an actual, we need actual data to measure that. Yeah, which but is quite unfortunate because, you know, I didn't do the bill. I didn't put it forward or anything. But, mm. you know, it, it's quite um, saddening to not see evidence from other countries mm. in the bill or reflecting the bill. I think that's quite common, though, with um, things in New Zealand, given that the demographic of New Zealand is relatively unique um, compared to other countries. You know, yeah. we have a large indigenous population plus a, another marginalized group like the Pacific, you know, people from Pacific Islands who are not technically indigenous but also have similar health issues because of colonization effects mm -hmm. while at the same time also having like a very mixed basket of, you know, cultures and ethnicities being and then a small... And you and I who are ethnically diverse, yeah, you know? And, and like immigrants from other countries and also an island and also... Um, relatively socially more progressive while at the same time, you know, we, I guess, therefore being socially progressive, actually care about un indigenous people, unlike some other countries, which I won't name. Um, so I think that kind of combination does make it a bit yeah. unique. I guess it's up to us to start thinking, you know, are we willing to start collecting data mm. with this bill? Yeah. Because we don't have a way of doing it before. Mm. Or are we going to say nah, and we're just going to let whatever is happening under the radar happening? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's like when I talk to my uncle, my aunt about people who have committed suicide within the hospital ward. Mm -hmm. You know, tried to unplug themselves, mm -hmm. had had a massive rage attack because they don't want to live anymore. You know, that happens, mm -hmm. but that's on the hush hush. 
Mm-hmm. No one really talks about. If you mm. talk to nurses, you know, the amount of people that they have to be there in support, you know, emotionally mm. because they can't ha- handle it any longer. Oh, yeah, very is, common. Is, is a thing. Yeah. Right? Definitely. So it's, it's, it's tricky because it's like, do you want to knowingly that there is going to be a risk and there is going to be some form of harm that you can collate that information and analyze it? Mm. Would you want to pass it, or would you just turn a blind eye to the situation and just let happen what's currently happening? Yeah, well, I guess the alternative would be collecting the data first, but then the question, yeah, so th- this is why I feel it's quite complicated. Is like, would we even be incentivized to collect the data if we didn't have the bill already there in place? It'd be hard to allocate budget to it. Yeah, and then on the, but then on the other hand is the, that, okay, well, we have the theory that, you know, marginalized populations will probably be it could potentially increase the disparity gap. However, also some you know studies from overseas countries are also indicating that actually it is more affluent people that are using it in the first place. So maybe it, w- it wouldn't be as much, but then there's the next question, which is how applicable is that data to New Zealand? And then the next question, which is who would actually be providing it? Because I don't think we actually know yet, right? Who no. would actually be, would it be? I mean, then there's two ways, privatized versus government. Public, yeah. Yeah, pu- completely public. And if it's privatized, then that obviously means that, I mean, look, I don't know if you have ever been, you know, like in the public healthcare system or the private healthcare system much, but two doctors, you know, hours of their time, plus the just even medication costs is not going to be cheap. You know, we're talking measure, measuring things in the thousands, not the hundreds. So if it does become privatized, then that will almost certainly increase the disparity gap. Yeah. Whereas if it's, public then acc would cover it and acc isn't the nice person around town mm. like my partners um say necessary evil is the way i normally talk about <laughs> it yeah my partner's you know my partner's dad you know he could have been cured with cancer mm-hmm. um the doctor was negligent mm-hmm. and now he's terminally ill and mm-hmm. he will face death earlier than you know what he was expected to mm-hmm. acc was not willing to pay for his medical bill, mm-hmm. even though it was a mistake from the practitioner, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, um, you're terminally ill. It's part of the guidelines. Yeah. So, you know, being able to um, have this work line item open up and hypothetically ACC being administering mm-hmm. it, then that opens a possibility for people like Luke's dad mm-hmm. to be able to have some support because mm. it's he's paying like $60,000 a year just to stay alive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I guess that becomes another layer of complexity given that ACC already is disfavorable for marginalized groups and that, you know, there are a lot of situations where someone will need to get a certain amount of help, but there's just so many hurdles to go through mm-hmm. that, you know, the person who just can't afford that time slash money slash effort or whatever is just less willing to go through with it. So there are so many different things that are balancing here. So really, you know, from from your point of view, what's the main question that really people need to be asking themselves outside of whether, outside of whether do you support euthanasia as a concept, outside of that question, which presumably people will already have something of an idea about. And by the way, we're going to go into this a lot more in depth, really going through every single aspect of the concepts for and against it um, with uh, our our just fully medical panel as well. But outside of that, that question, what's the main question that people really need to be asking themselves that maybe people aren't asking themselves? Because for me, that question is, 
is do I want to show my support of the concept or, or not support of the concept uh, and then work on any problems after that? Or do I want to make sure that we somehow find a way to work out the problems before allowing it to come into force? And that's something that I find, honestly, qu personally, quite a tricky decision to make. Yeah, I am full agreement with you. You know, being someone who is a design thinker and who has specialized on wanting to, like, observe, collate information, test, 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 fail, 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 and then come with a more accurate solution, which is what you tend to do in other parts of the world. I'm My question, personally, is with both referendums, is are we going to crudely bring this out into the open and start finding the data about these two re issues, or are we going to just turn a blind eye because it's too hard for us to deal with emotionally? Hmm. That's That's where I'm confronted with mm. I, I actually yeah, I think from for a lot of the medical people I, I think the emotional aspect of it is not the thing that would be difficult I, maybe yeah, for course. a lot you guys are trying to but I yeah. guess in terms of the general for the, for public. the general public for the general public yeah but I suspect that you know most of our listeners have at least some level of medicalness to them and for, for them the main thing is going to be about sort of the um, assertiveness maybe maybe the weighing up mm. of whether it's the, the cost and benefit is there from especially i think especially from a two questions like the is this currently a health priority versus is this something that's going to make a you know the, the disparity like you know new zealand health practitioners are just like obsessed about making sure disparity doesn't get worse you know that's yeah. just drilled into us like every single day and when you work you see it full force it's slapping you in the face every Gosh. second the disparity and so if there's anything that makes a disparity worse, I think we know that anything that makes a disparity worse, that will grow fast and fast and faster. Yes. And the, the time and effort required to fix that is often, you know, scale, doesn't scale yeah. to that. And I think that's the thing. Those are the two things, I think, and kind of com combined in a yeah. way. I think the Opportunities Party agrees with your um, initiative. That's why they're, well, initiative, no, point of view. The point of view. Basically, what tends to happen is that we are all about interim solutions mm -hmm. and we don't do the hard work at the beginning to prevent. So, you know, the party's taken a perspective of looking at the prevention side of things, you know, and hasn't really specifically analyzed or put a lot of time into the bill mm. because for them in the long run, because we're trying to think about longer impact, we're trying to solve the disparity. Mm. So that's why the universal basic income, that's why being able to fix the housing issues. That's why being able to support local businesses and, um, you know, having that sugar tax and all of that is to be able to work on the prevention side of things to tackle that disparity. Mm. Um, the bill passing or not passing won't solve this issue. It might aggregate certain sp specific um, demographics, mm. but in, in, a, in a big, greater perspective, you know, the country's severely struggling with our income going this growth rate and our houses and our rents going this growth rate. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also the social issue of mm -hmm. us not having a relationship with our food, mm -hmm. not really understanding where our food comes from and not seeing the nutrients with that. So your, 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 your perspective or rather, you know, your perspective and also top's perspective is, is more along the lines that, okay, the euthanasia bill at the moment, you know, 
Um, it's there. Pa- pa- not, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the euthanasia problem as a concept in a way is just a symptom of something that's more underlying. And then so you're f- more focused on the treating the underlying yeah. part instead. Yeah, TOPS focused all their policies. Their four main policies are fundamental, you know, pillars of what's creating all our social issues, Mm. which is, you know, our housing, which is our our way of um, seeing our welfare system and, you know, the stigma behind it and how we um, look at not honoring um, non-paid work and stuff like that. Mm. Um, And then obviously, you know, the economy like Mm. small business, and then the climate issues. You know, we need to look at the climate in a holistic perspective because we need to learn as human beings that we need to work with and for the environment, Mm. not take away from it. Final question, I think, just to wrap things up, uh, which I think, I'm sure a lot of medical people have this on their minds, is if the bill didn't get passed, how difficult really would it be for this to do another round later on Mm. when there's more data? Yeah, you need to find an eager champ to lead it. You know, like Chloe led the cannabis referendum. Um, David Seymour has led the end-of-life bill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's up to someone within parliament to be eager to do it again. And that takes money. And, you know, I don't remember at the top of my head how much each referendum costs, but it's a ludicrous amount of money to just print a piece of paper and send it through to everyone so that they can tick a box and all the operational costs around it. So that's also an issue, you know, and that's something that I've heard a lot of people that are for the bill um, say it because uh, I was at a debate just um, last Wednesday and, you know, Paul Goldsmith was saying that, you know, he's voting against both of them. Because, you know, he believes that Canada's doing it and so-and-so are doing it. So let's just watch five years and see right. what's going to happen. Right. And then make a decision. Mm. You know, that's fine. But how much money has it cost us to get those things right now in front of us? Mm. You know, like, are we, money's no object. Should we just push it to one side mm. or should we analyze it? So that's that's the scenario that you were facing. Mm. And it's tricky because I don't know what to say in that perspective. Yeah, because the, uh, the flip side to that is like sunk cost, right? Is that, okay, you may have already sunk this much, but then if that's going to create a problem that's like a hundred times more expensive, then that's obviously, you know, even Is even it worse. fiscally responsible? Yeah. I would say that even more from that is that you can, you can watch the other countries, but actually the Netherlands has been doing this for quite a while yeah. now. I don't think five years more of data is actually really going to change much there. Um, I remember being for a both s- referendums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, like for example, I remember attending um, you know, conferences where we'd have um, euthanasia specialists from Netherlands come and, and talk to us about this. And I remember having these when I was a, a student, and this was you know several years ago. And even then, they had already been running it for years. So I don't think really watching and waiting other countries is going to help purely because I think we are at a point now where we need to get data on our car- our actual demographic more so because we've got enough data from other countries just in principle. That's my personal view and I'm I not a specialist. I fully agree with you, yeah. 100%. Now, so yeah, for, so for me, the question is whether should this data be collected before or after the bill? And that for me really comes down to how difficult will it be to get this coming round again and incentivize that. I think that's something that, you know, I'll need to um, think about, you know, more so. And I think that's where probably a lot of, uh, you know, medical people will be coming from not everyone but i think that will be a a common 
line of thought. So I think, well, anyway, that's, um, yeah, very interesting. And I'm sure I'm going to have a lot of discussions with my doctor friends about this as well. And, um, yeah, but if, uh, if you had to sort of leave with like any closing, you know, remark from your own perspective or from a political perspective that you want to leave people to sort of just chew on, what would that be? If it's any different. If it's any different. I feel that I've um, said it quite a lot throughout um, this, which is, you know, the Opportunities Party is really focused on wanting to tackle the fundamental mm. issues that are happening within the country. And, um, you know, having evidence and policies that are well thought out and forecasted, such as the UBI, the housing mm. policy, the infrastructure policy, the small business recovery policy, the climate recovery policy, um, you know, these policies will change systematically our disparity, mm -hmm. you know, and it isn't from here to three years' time. You know, it will be trying to fix this to even it out right. is going to take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I feel that it's up to us to consciously start taking decisions that help us prevent issues rather than saying, oops, I'm sorry, we did it, Right. So then again, that's the question. And that's why I like top. That's the question with the end of life bill. Are you going to go, yep, cool, and then go, oh, shit, sorry, excuse my French. Or then, or or the opposite is we don't have any data. Let's delve ourselves into the deep end. Let's take the risk, and let's start being able to be well more informed and being able to amend certain issues with this bill. Mm. Good insights. Great discussion. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. It's um, quite complicated when I'm not a medical practitioner no, or someone who's in parliament. To, but um, I think more valuable to come from that perspective uh, as well. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, we, we talk about things from a medical perspective all the time and, and people don't always, are not always on the same page. So it's always good to have that yeah, kind well, of discussion. It's great. You know, that's why science is there because you're meant to debate and, you know, compare your ideas and that's when people get along and have all the same data results then we're onto something and that's mm. what top's trying to do you know it's trying yeah. to like you know if these guys who tend to disagree a lot are agreeing on something it's because you know their right. money's there mm. well uh thanks for paying attention thanks for um listening hopefully that was a valuable conversation remember again we've got another episode that we're talking about the more in depth if you're really interested in knowing about the pros and cons the fours and against um, about euthanasia, more from that really deep medical, ethical, conce conceptual framework, then um, check out that episode. Um, I will definitely check it out myself. Thanks for coming on to mm -hmm. the show. Thank if you. you're watching us on YouTube and you're interested in this type of content, consider subscribing. We uh, will put out videos that we think are interested, uh, interesting for you. And if you've got any suggestions, leave them in the comments as well or get in touch. But otherwise, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to Subcut. If you guys have any suggestions for content, please make sure you send it through. You can get in touch and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or find us on our website at jttmed.com slash subcut. Subcut is a podcast brought to you by JTT. If you or anyone you know is interested in a career in medicine, make sure to get in touch and check us out at jttmed.com.